Isn't it wonderful to celebrate what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? That's what we're here to do today. I uh, hope that you didn't come here today to sing or to listen to preaching or to spend time with your friends, have interesting conversations, or maybe even just get lifted up in life. I hope that you came here today to worship God, to worship the matchless, infinite, perfect name of our holy God. That's why we're here. That's, why, uh, that's what we're about to do. That's what we just finished doing, worshiping God in song. That's what we're doing now as we move into the, the instruction through the word of God portion of our service here today. This is all worship. Now we recognize that there are many threats, many threats facing the church of Jesus Christ. In recent years, we've seen and increase in violent persecution around the world. We've, we've heard about this now for, for quite some time on the news. I think 2014 was particularly rough, and then the, but that's continued up through the last couple of years as we've seen persecution, particularly by radical Islam, of Christians all over the world, but especially in places like Syria and Iraq. Here in the United States, we are frequently confronted with attacks against religious liberty and Christian conscience. And so we see the desire of many to revoke the Hyde Amendment, which protects Christian conscience with respect to taxpayer dollars used to fund abortion through Medicaid. We see that that is being discussed. We see attacks on Christian colleges and universities. We see this all throughout our culture and even in the sports and entertainment culture. We see that Christian convictions are increasingly being dismissed and mocked. This, is, this has seemed to, to rev up in a new way just in recent years. I mean, there's been what, what some people call kind of a revolution, a moral revolution, but really a, a, a hatred or an antipathy towards Christianity increasing more and more by the month, by the year, it seems, in our culture. So we face these threats as we see them, but there's a far more dangerous threat facing Christ's church. And here I mean by Christ's church, not just the local church, which this is a local church. They're right now worshiping all over the world, well, in Eastern Standard Time, right? I guess not quite yet because 11 o'clock is the official church hour. But right now, I guess worshiping here and all over the world, there are Christians who belong to Christ's capital C church, the universal church. And this is one expression of that as an individual local church. And the far more dangerous threat than these things I just mentioned to the local church and to the universal church is false teaching from false teachers. False teachers and their teaching. This is a threat to the life-saving and life-preserving gospel of Jesus Christ. As I said at the very beginning, we're here to worship. We're here to worship God most significantly or primarily for what he's done for us in Jesus. We, we look to God, we worship him because he has brought us in by Christ. When Christ hung on the cross, he, he drew all men to himself through his death on the cross. And so when we worship God, we are worshiping him singularly for one thing. It sort of rises above everything else, or it encapsulates everything else that we worship God for. We love the fact that God made trees and beautiful sunsets and other things. We love the fact that God gives us breath and God gives us many blessings. But above all, we worship God because of what he's done for us in Christ. And that very thing is what is at stake when we talk about 
false teachers and false teaching. A threat to the life-saving and life-preserving gospel of Jesus Christ. So the title for today's sermon is A Gospel Threat. We've had a gospel worker, a gospel leader. Today, as we look at Titus 1, 10 to 16, you can go ahead and turn there. As we look at these verses, we come to the topic of a gospel threat. A gospel threat. You can go ahead and turn there. We'll read it in a moment. But I want you to notice that this passage flows directly out of what we've covered on elders. So we've spent a number of sermons looking at the topic of elders, gospel leaders. That's what we've been in for the three previous weeks. And if you look down in Titus 1, go ahead and look in your Bible. If you look at verse 5, we see this. The need for elders. Paul left Titus in Crete so that he would... Put into order what remained and appoint elders in every town as I directed you, Paul said. So we see there that there is a need for elders. And that's where we talked about an elder's significance. And then in verse 9, we see that they must be qualified in a particular kind of work. What is that work in verse 9? It is that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able. So here we have the ability. We have competence to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so there we see the kind of work that this elder figure who is necessary, that the church needs, we see what he is about doing. And then in verses 10 to 16, we get the reason why we need elders who are involved in this kind of work. The elders that are so necessary, verse 5, are involved in this kind of work, verse 9, and we see why. It is so necessary that we have them. Verse 10, because there are many who, dot, 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 verse 11, teach what they ought not to teach. So there are many false teachers, and elders are required, gospel leaders, the kind that we've spent three weeks talking about, are necessary for protecting the church against this imminent threat of false teachers and their teaching. In other words, there is a real threat facing the church, false teachers and their teaching, and elders or gospel leaders have the responsibility of minimizing and eliminating this threat. If they don't, no one else will. If we don't, no one else will. So let's read our passage, verses 10 to 16, Titus 1. For, connecting it to the previous passage, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. By the way, to the modern mind and ear, 
This is offensive. So offensive. I mean, Paul, this is harsh language. This is hard, hard language. And I think in our kind of ultra politically correct culture, we need to constantly be reconfronted with the attitude of the apostles towards false teachers. So much acceptance of false teachers and false teaching is sort of under the banner of tolerance or under the banner even of what it means to be kind and gentle and and so forth, the good biblical virtues. But what we see is we know the apostles were kind and gentle. We know that about them. We see that in many ways, yet they still say these things. They still say these things in this way. So just something to consider as we move into our topic for today. Let's pray to our Father. Our Holy Father, God, what a privilege it is to call you Father. We do it today by faith. Lord, we don't don't always feel like your children. We don't always feel like we belong or feel like you have a fatherly disposition towards us or feel like the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to our account or, or feel that our sins are forgiven. But God, by faith, Hebrews 11 kind of faith, by faith we press on. We press on in confidence that your promises will never fail. That there, no one who believes in Jesus will be put to shame. That if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. And God, we praise you for this glorious promise. We praise you for the righteousness which is ours in Jesus. That we, we don't need to leave here this morning. And we, we all are growing, but Father, we recognize this morning we don't need to leave here and do better in order to be accepted by you. We don't need to leave here this morning with, with great resolutions and new commitments in order to earn your favor, in order to be clean in your sight, but that in Christ we already are. We praise you, God, for this gospel, this glorious gospel of grace that just revolutionizes everything that we are and everything that we do and that captures us and motivates us for good works and for holy living and for everything, God, that we will try and endeavor to accomplish in this life. We thank you for the gospel of grace and we just want to worship you for that today and we want to see clearly today the threat that exists against the gospel, to the gospel. And so, Father, we ask that you will do that through our time, that you will enlighten our minds, that you will uh, inflame our hearts with love and enjoyment and delight in you. And, Father, that that will drive us over the next week to live unto your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to make five observations from our text about this threat, this threat of false teachers and their teaching. Five things. One, This threat is internal. Two, it brings devastation. Three, it comes with vice. It must be combated and it replaces and corrupts. And the fifth is really where we look at what is is at the heart of this false teaching. So I think as we go through verses 10 to 16, I think these are are at least some of the major items that we are to grab hold of, to, to assimilate, to understand, and to practice and live in accordance with as we think about the implications of these things for our lives. So let's look at the first one. It is internal. This threat is internal. Here in verse 10, 
we are introduced to these false teachers who have arisen, what? Within the church. They haven't come from the outside and bombarded the church with something. They're not lobbing missiles into the church. These, these are folks who have come from within, from, from in the church who have emerged to the surface. They are largely or entirely of the circumcision party, literally those from the circumcision. And the way that this language is used of the circumcision does not necessarily imply that these are the kinds of Judaizers that Paul confronts in Galatians. Not necessarily uh, Jews who are desiring that everyone be circumcised, that circumcision itself is the issue that they are focusing on. That's not necessarily the case. The, the verbiage instead just simply indicates Jewish Christians. Oftentimes, though, within the New Testament, these Jewish Christians are Judaizers. They are those who want to emphasize becoming a Jew in order to be of Jesus or being circumcised in order to become a Christian. So they may or may not be focusing on circumcision. I'll say a little bit more about the nature of this heresy or this false teaching and these false teachers as we go on. But I just wanted to kind of lay that groundwork there. A constant theme in the New Testament is that false teachers will arise among believers. And you can find this. In fact, one, uh, one commentator that I read took the time to actually go and, and, and put every single instance in the epistles where uh, the, uh, the writer says, false teachers, warning, warning, warning. Here's what, they, here's what they will do. Here's what they will say. Here's what they'll be like. Here's their character. Warning, warning, beware, threat, danger. You find that all throughout the New Testament. Every single writer has much to say about this threat. So here's the thing, just at the very beginning. If the New Testament authors thought that this was so serious and so significant, why would we act like this is a non-issue? And so often in the church today, we do. We act like this is a non-issue. Yeah, of course, there'll be false teachers every once in a while, maybe every hundred years, or maybe in that church over there, or maybe in that segment of Christianity over there, but we don't actually see the danger. We don't actually see the threat, which is entirely out of touch with the perception and the warnings of the apostles. And keep this in mind, even in the apostolic age, meaning... That these are people who have, some of whom have seen Jesus. Some of whom have seen the risen Christ. Some of whom, all of whom in this, in this situation, interacted with the apostles who were with Jesus for three years. So if, if false teaching was prevalent in their day, how much more today? How much more today for those of us who do not have the apostles there standing among us? That check and that balance. Acts 20, 29 to 30, to the Ephesian elders, Paul says this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves. By the way, wolves, dogs, beasts. This is the language that the New Testament uses for false teachers. Wolves, dogs, and beasts. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things 
twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And I want you to understand, this is the satanic strategy against the church. It's not, it's not primarily the government. It's not primarily Supreme Court decisions. That's not primarily the struggle that the church faces. That's not it. The struggle that the church faces primarily, the satanic strategy that we are running up against constantly is this. False teachers and their teaching. So what do we do? What do we do about this? Paul goes on to tell the Ephesian elders this. The very next two verses, he says this. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among, the, among those who are sanctified. So what do we do? How do we, we, we recognize, okay, this is a serious threat. It's a serious issue. We've got a problem that we will inevitably face. What's our response? Well, Paul envisions that they have vigilance. Be alert. Recognize, first of all, that it's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem in this church. It's going to be a problem in the universal church. It's going to be a problem as we walk into the Christian bookstore. It's going to be a problem everywhere in the church. So be vigilant. Be alert. Notice the problem. Notice where you see it. And then secondly, seriousness. I mean, listen to Paul. I admonished you night and day for three years with tears. Is this the attitude of myself and of our other elders here at the church? That's a question that's convicting this attitude, Paul admonishing you for three years with tears, that level of seriousness about the things of God, about the care of God's people, do we have that? Paul did, and he calls the Ephesian elders to the same, and he calls us elders to the same. Attention to the word of his grace. We must preach the gospel to ourselves constantly must constantly be reminded that everything we have is by grace. It's by God's grace. It's God's grace in Christ as he freely gave Christ over to, to become sin for us. And then as he freely imputes Christ's righteousness to us and freely, as we learn later in Titus, as he freely regenerates, actually it's in chapter three, as he regenerates the hearts of those who will believe gives us faith and repentance, it's all grace, and then gives us works from before the foundation of the world that we should walk in them. Even our works, God's grace, all of it. God's free, unmerited favor, his free gift to us all. This must be constantly in the mind, soup, in the mental soup of the church and especially of its leaders. That's what Paul says to the Ephesian elders. Also, we hold each other accountable. We hold each other accountable to what we assent to, the kinds of people that we read, the kinds of sermons that we listen to, the kinds of Christian figures that we follow, the kinds of interactions that we have with false teachers and cults. We hold each other accountable. We guard each other and never think for a moment that we can't be led astray, that we cannot be captured by false teaching, by lies, this is Satan's strategy for destroying the church. This church, this church, four corners, and every church, and the universal church, this is the greatest threat, and it is internal. The second thing I want you to see is that it brings devastation. This threat brings devastation. 
These teachers, Paul says in verse 11, must be silenced. Why? I mean, can't you just ignore them? Can't you just marginalize them? push them over to the side, let them have a little group where they perpetuate their false teaching and maybe just have a little Bible study, the false teacher Bible study. That's the false teacher gospel community group over there. Can we just do it that way? Is that how we do it? No, they must be silenced, Paul says. Why? Because they're upsetting whole families. Now maybe, so, so commentators debate on what this means, upsetting whole families. Maybe marriage is being forbidden, and so there's a, there's a direct upsetting of families. As we find in 1 Timothy 4, 3, the idea that, that certain false teachers, at least as, as Timothy is dealing with them in Ephesus, different perhaps and probably from what Titus is dealing with in Crete, but the kinds of false teachers that Timothy is dealing with are forbidding marriage and eating certain foods. And so maybe it's this forbidding of marriage that itself is quite literally upsetting families. Maybe certain practices are being emphasized that run contrary to gospel growth in families. Because notice chapter 2. What do we find in chapter 2? Older men. Older women. Young women. Young men. So it seems that there may be a relationship here between this passage where whole families are being upset and the following passage where the individual members within a family are discussed and treated. Maybe young women in particular are being targeted. As we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, it says this, For among these false teachers are those who creep. They creep. It's diabolical. It's sinister. And the writer wants you to get that. They creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. And so maybe there are women within the church, young women or widows, others, who are being targeted specifically by these false teachers in certain ways. And this may explain why in chapter 2 we get what seems to be an emphasis on young women. Remember when Paul talks to the older women in chapter 2 and then he talks to, I mean, he talks to the older men and then the older women. What is one of the things he says to the older women? Train the younger women. And then he goes into what they should be trained to do. This is a little bit more content, it seems, partially at least, in chapter 2 regarding young women. So maybe this is the problem. It's not exactly clear what is happening in terms of families. But whatever it is, it's happening. It's happening. Families, entire families, are being upset. And I want you to notice two things in particular as we consider this devastation, this ruin, this destruction, destructiveness of false teachers and their teaching. First, the Greek word here for upsetting is the same word used of Jesus in the temple when he overturned the tables. Do you remember that scene? Jesus goes with righteous indignation into the temple and there's no worship going on. It's just selling and, and ripping people off and other kinds of things. It's total, total profaning of God's holy temple. And Jesus goes in and he overturns the tables of the money changers. That's the same Greek word here. The idea is to turn over and throw down, to ruin. The coins go everywhere. Remember, Jesus turns over the table, coins go everywhere. This is the image of the false teachers and what they do to entire households, not just an individual, but entire households, ripped up, turned over upside down and thrown to the ground, ruined, devastated, destroyed. This is the kind of thing that's happening in real time in Crete. 
And Paul is saying to Titus, you must stop it. You must stop it. And the elders who are appointed must stop it. So this is a serious effect and it must be treated as such. A second thing that I want you to consider is that this devastating effect happens as individual family units are targeted and isolated from the whole. And I want you to consider this for a moment. There is a kind of of strength that exists, a strength and protectedness that, that exists within the whole the body of Christ, that someone can't just get up here and just share anything with the the body of Christ. Hold on a second. What's that guy talking about? And you get the whole body together and there's a kind of strength in that unity of oneness, that oneness of the body of Christ. People who have corporately come together to worship God as a people, as a body, there's a kind of strength there. But when you begin to isolate and target and isolate individual units, particularly families within that whole, and you kind of begin to sort of coax them out and you pull them off to the side and you begin to pour your debauchery and false teaching into them, you upset that. The strengthening of the whole goes away and the family is upset. This is also a reminder to fathers. Remember we talked about the role of a father in discipling his wife. Remember we talk, when we talked about, when we went through Ephesians chapter five and six, we saw that a father has, a, a husband has a role to disciple, responsibly to disciple his wife. And he also has a role as a father, if he has children, to bring up, and in fact the word is father's. The father has the primary responsibility in doing what? Bringing up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers who don't do that, no matter how much you think you have it together, no matter how many theology books that you think that that you've acquired in your mind and you've got it all nailed down and you think your biblical knowledge is up to speed, and we do that, right? We read the Bible, we get to know the Bible a little bit, and then we rest on that. I know the Bible. You move on, you don't pay any attention to it, you read it sporadically. And so we begin to become smug and we think we have it all together as fathers. And they creep in. They creep in. These false teachings, these doctrines of demons, as it's said elsewhere. And they capture the family. They capture our wives. They capture our children. They capture our entire home because we do not shepherd our homes properly. We do not shepherd our homes with God's word. We don't teach our families. We don't give any attention to teaching truth. We just think the church will do that or every once in a while we'll have a verse or a little five-minute Bible reading or that's it. That's not gonna do it. That's not going to protect the individual family that could be upset from false teaching. Fathers are pastors of their homes, little shepherds of a little church as the Puritans called the family. So this threat brings devastation. That's the second thing I want you to see. Thirdly, it comes with vice. It comes with vice. Vice, maybe you're like, huh, vice? It comes with immorality, all forms of viciousness, all forms of, of swerving from wisdom, all forms of swerving from God-like behavior or godliness. It comes with vice. Notice all of the language of immorality used in this passage. All this immorality language. Notice it. Verse 10. Look at verse 10. These false teachers are what? Insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Look at verse 11. They do what they do for shameful gain. They are greedy. 
Look at verse 12. They embody the worst characteristics of the Cretan culture. They are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, let me say a bit about this, this quote from a Cretan prophet. He said, a prophet of their own. Paul is referring to a 6th century poet, philosopher, figure, a Cretan named Epimenides. And he wrote in the 6th century that he, he wrote this this about Cretans, his fellow countrymen. This is, this is us. This is who we are. And, and, and in case you're thinking that, that Paul is just sort of being a bigot and stereotyping and caricaturing uh, the entire people on account of just this one source, you can go back and you can look at ancient records. And in fact, it was universally accepted that Cretans were particularly immoral people that it was a kind of immoral culture. It was kind of an immoral subculture in that world and that, that it, had, it was so pervasive among the Cretans that the entire people could be described in this way. This was uh, universally accepted, universally known, and you find a number of sources that identify how this is the case. In fact, the verb, the Greek verb kratidzo was coined for lying. I mean, imagine that. If we had a verb like Americanize, and that may exist in some countries around the world, but the, uh, like if there was a verb to Americanize, what would that mean? Uh, to play the American, what would that mean? Well, in, in the ancient world, there was a verb for that. There was a verb for Cretans, to, to be a Cretan, to act like a Cretan, to Cretanize. And it was, it was, it was a synonym for lying. So we know that this culture was particularly dubious in many different ways. So we have that in verse 12. Then in verse 16, they are detestable and disobedient. Look at all this language. Immoral, vicious character language. There is much that could be said here, but I want you to get the big picture. And this, it's this. This is the big picture. I could go through and define all of these words. We could look at them. And this would be three parts maybe two parts. We won't do that this time around, but here's the big picture that I do want you to see. False teaching is always accompanied by immoral living. Always, always, always. It may not appear to be the case. In fact, it rarely will appear to be the case. False teachers are crafty. They creep, remember, into households. It may not appear to be the case, but it always is. So many of the prosperity gospel preachers, as an example, the heresy that they promote all over the world that's infected much of Africa and other parts of the world, the prosperity gospel, the idea that believing in God, believing in God brings health, wealth, and, and happiness, that, that that's what it's all about. And so it's not a, there, there's, there's a de-emphasizing of, of, of what it looks like to live in this world before the consummation. There's a de-emphasizing of all of the passages in Scripture that talk about what it looks like to, to suffer with Christ and to, to go through this life being persecuted and suffering and giving up this world, dying to yourself, bearing your cross, and all of that language. It's just sort of smothered over with this desire, get Christian. Christianity, get rich. Get Christianity, get all your needs met. Get Christianity, and if you're really living it right, your life will be just dandy. Every day will be a Friday. Every day will be perfect. Every day will be exciting. Every day will be filled with health, wealth, and happiness. So many of these prosperity gospel preachers seem like upstanding, nice, kind people. They do. I mean, you... You meet them, you see their smiles, you see their smiles, and you think these are nice, 
friendly, kind people. But their immorality cannot help but to shine through in their excessive lifestyles and craving after money. It can't help but to shine through, right? You see it. You just have to look. You just have to be attentive. You have to be nuanced in your understanding of of people. You have to have a little bit of an understanding of human nature, a basic understanding as we even look into our own hearts and we see how we are as people. This immorality of false teachers can also be seen in the emptiness of their speech. The emptiness of their speech. So for example, I recently came across an Oprah interview with Rob Bell. Rob Bell, an individual who wrote Love Wins, basically a universalistic take on heaven, salvation, hell, and so forth. Oprah asked Rob Bell this, your definition of heaven, or your definition of God, go. So basically she was just giving him these quick words, phrases, and he was to respond. Your definition of God. Answer from Rob Bell, Like a song you hear in another room and think, that sounds beautiful, but I can only hear a little bit. So you start opening doors and rearranging furniture because you have to get in that room to hear that song. And when you get in, you find the knobs and you turn them all to the right because you're like, I've got to get more of that. Then you open the windows because you want the people in the next houses to hear it. Empty talk, meaningless speech. What in the world does that even mean? (laughs) It's empty. It's empty. It has no weight. It has no substance. Because it has no truth. It is empty talk. It is exactly what Paul identifies here. Empty talk. Deceitful speech. An expression. Behind the smile of false teachers that can inevitably come out. That inevitably will come out. And so if you're discerning and not simplistic, not naive, you'll see it. You'll see it. But you have to have biblical glasses. And you have to understand the nature of human beings and their sin. You can't be naive and duped and simple. You have to know God's word and be discerning in the spirit. Or Satan, by means of their craftiness of these false teachers, will grab hold of your heart, grab hold of your children, grab hold of your wife, your husband, and destroy your family. And destroy this church. And destroy many churches. Shut down many churches with these lies. And we've seen that, denomination after denomination. Walking away from the gospel walking away from the authority of the Bible, walking away from gospel truth to pursue all forms of ungodliness and error. So this threat comes with vice. That's the main thing I wanted you to see there. Fourthly, it must be combated. It must be combated. False teaching, whether in the universal or local church, must be combated. And in our passage... Three aspects of this combating activity are covered. Silencing, rebuking, and restoring. We see all of those ideas here. So first, silencing. This idea of silencing. Look at verse 11. He says, as I've read before, they must be silenced. The emphasis here really is on stopping the dissemination of their cancerous, polluting, corrupting, false teaching stopping it so that it is not able to reach out into the hearts and minds of more people. You stop it. It's, it the word is actually to sort of muzzle 
And it's interesting, Paul refers to them as beasts. So there is that sense. Put the muzzle on. Stop the mouth of false teachers. It's very much, I think, in the, in the language here of what Paul is trying to get at. They must be stopped. They must be silenced. And as I said at the end of the sermon last week, this is one of the things that, that makes me a little bit more comfortable with pastors and preachers and speakers who will publicly rebuke or reprove or refute other teachers, preachers, pastors, and so forth. So we might be inclined to say, well, that's not appropriate. We, we appear divided to the world. and That's not appropriate. We should not do that. That's unkind. That's unloving. That's intolerant and so on and so forth. But that's simply just not biblical. That way of thinking is not biblical when you come to this. They must be silenced. And if it is an affront against the universal church, who else? Then pastors of local churches and leaders within the universal church, who else will say anything? Who else will rebuke and reprove and confront and convict and combat? And all of those things. Second, this silencing happens through vehement rebuke. Vehement rebuke. Look at verse 13. Look at what he says there. Rebuke them sharply. One of the interesting things I did early on when I started this kind of studying for this series on Titus, I went through and I looked at the whole book and I tried to circle in my Bible all of the instances where Paul gives an imperative to Titus. This is what you do. This is what you do. And it's really interesting because as you go through the book of Titus, you can really trace the argument of this book. You can really, tr you really can wrap your mind around what this book's about or what emphases are being, uh, what emphases are, are present in this book if you go through and you circle those imperatives. But this is one of the strongest imperatives, some of the strongest language that you find in all of this epistle. Rebuke them sharply. He doesn't just say rebuke them. He uses the word sharply, which is an incredibly strong word. Rebuke them sharply. This is not soft or accommodating rebuke. This is firm. This is strong rebuke. To quickly and decisively bring them to a point of recognizing their error. That's what rebuke means. To rebuke them in such a way that they come to see very quickly and very adamantly, this is false. This is wrong. This will not be tolerated. That is what is in view. The picture is given later in Titus 3.10. So if you look over at, at verse 10 of chapter 3, listen to what Paul tells Titus there. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning or admonishing him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. So that's the way it kind of looks. And that brings in Matthew 18. That brings in 1 Corinthians 5 as you think about church discipline. You have an individual in the church who's being divisive, who's teaching false doctrine. You, you rebuke them one person, then you bring another person. That's Matthew 18. You rebuke them once, rebuke them a second time. And if they will not listen to you, you present them for, before the church, Matthew 18, and you treat them as a tax collector or a sinner. In other words, you treat them as an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians 5, you do not, you do not uh, grow with them in community. This is uh, the language. This is the kind of thing that would need to happen for those who are teaching things which are contrary to the gospel. So I wanna, I wanna just kind of give this side note here because, well, I'll get to that in a moment. First, let's look at the third activity or third aspect. So there's, there's silencing, there's rebuking. Thirdly, restoring restoring them to gospel truth. Notice this in verse 13. By the way, this is just a testimony to the grace of God. 
Have, have, you, have you been paying attention so far? And have you noticed, I know I probably ask that question every 10 minutes or so, but think about this. If you have been paying attention so far, notice all of the language, the moral language that we've gotten. All this, this vehement language against these false teachers and all this language about the moral corruption within them. Paul can say all of that and then he can say this in verse 13. This is the grace of God. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. In other words, even these guys, even these evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and so on and so forth, who, who demonstrate this kind of debauchery and who demonstrate this kind of, of disobedience to the truth and who reject God's word, who reject the message of Christ, the gospel of Christ, the cross of Christ, these individuals, even, the, even they, <coughs> restored as they came into the church and they began to partake of the gospel, but they, they steered away from it. They turned away from it, as it says. They turned away from the truth. Bring them back. Bring them back. And anyone they've taken with them, these families that have been upset, that have been, cra- that have been thrown down and crashed, build them back up. Rebuke them because they've listened to false teaching. Rebuke them because they've taught falsely. And then bring them all back to the truth of God. Bring them back to sound gospel truth. It is by its nature restorative. All church discipline is restorative. All authority exercised in the church is about the love of souls. It's about desiring that none should perish and that all people, even the most vile false teachers, be brought back to the truth and know and be bathed in the mercy of God in Christ. 2 Timothy 2, 25 to 26 captures this. Listen to these words of Paul. In case you might be overwhelmed with all this vehement language of combating false teachers, you might be thinking, man, what in the world? This is kind of crazy. I haven't read these things before. I need to revisit some of this. This is entirely intolerant. In case maybe that's your, that's your, that's your thinking at this point, listen to these words in 2 Timothy 2, 25 to 26, correcting opponents with gentleness. Now, it takes much wisdom to discern what sharp rebuke and gentleness together look like. We talked about that with parenting. What does it look like to discipline children with gentleness? As a, as a, as a nursing mother, as a father who urges our children and not provoke them to anger, this, is, this requires wisdom. And by the way, let me say this. This is the reason why a, a, an elder's home is so important to his leadership in the church. Notice that. Because the same word that we find used at the very beginning of this passage in verse 10, insubordinate, is the word used of the children of elders. So elders should not have children who are insubordinate. And this is why. Because if elders are not able to, in their own home, under their supervision, train up their children unto obedience and keep them subordinate or submissive, how in the world will they be able to do that, do that in the church when there will be many like this who are insubordinate and who will need to be brought back under the authority of the word of God and the authority of the leadership? See the connection between the home and the church, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Back to 2 Timothy. God may perhaps grant them, listen to this grace. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, which they've rejected. Knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses, these false teachers, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Notice the devil's doing all this, right? The devil's behind it after being captured by him to do his will. You see that, the relationship? 
Satan captures, enslaves false teachers. They do his bidding. And then those false teachers in turn creep into households and they do the same. And then people fall over to false teaching and it just keeps growing and growing and growing. But notice where it starts. The origin is Satan. This is his strategy. It is diabolical. And yet, the grace of God is greater than Satan, even for false teachers. So the grace is always extended even to them. Let me make a little side note here. All of this has to do with the gospel. And we're getting to that now and here in a moment. You might be thinking at this point, well, false teacher, what does that mean? Anyone who believes what you don't believe? I mean, wow, that could get kind of tense. And it has been. We've seen this with sort of throughout the, the early part of the 20th century. We saw among sort of fundamentalist American Christians all this battling and bickering and writing against one another for the little fine points of theology that they disagreed on. And for, you know, you associated with this person and you went to this crusade and you didn't go to that. And, this, and so there's this, all this bickering and this quarreling over words, nitpicking, attacking over every doctrinal difference. This is not what we're talking about. We are talking about the gospel, the gospel of grace. And that's what we're going to go to now as we finish up this morning. Number five, the threat of false teachers and their teaching replaces and corrupts replaces and corrupts. Go ahead and look with me in verses 14 to 16. Let's read those as we come to the end this morning. Verses 14 to 16, we come to know some more about this false teaching and what it is. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This threat of false teachers and their teaching replaces and it corrupts. What do I mean by that? Well, the false teaching that Paul has in mind is at its core, and here's the, here's the most significant thing really to get out of, out of this entire sermon today. At its core, it is a replacement of the divine with the human. It's idolatry. You take it all the way back. Romans 1. Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Worshiping things. Worshiping the human. This is exactly idolatry. See this. Idolatry is at the heart of gospel rejection. To reject the gospel is to worship idols. It all goes back to the very beginning. It's the same as the Old Testament. It is to replace the divine with the human. First, replacing God's word with human words, human imagination, and human speculations. The apostolic preaching is replaced with, notice verse 14. What is it replaced with? It's replaced with Jewish myths. And then in chapter three, verse nine, these myths are associated with genealogies. So basically, God has sent his son to take on sin, a perfect sinless one, to take on sin, the God who, who created all things, who called Abraham, and who created a people, who through that people, despite all that went on, he brought about the coming of his Messiah, Matthew chapter one. His Messiah was raised perfectly. He grew in, in wisdom and stature. He lived a perfect sinless life. And then God put all of our sin on him so that he, the spotless lamb of God, could die in our place and remove the guilt of sin. They've replaced that with genealogies and myths 
That's what they've done. They've replaced the word of God with human speculations about even weird things. They're looking back, most people think, no one really knows what, what in the world you know, this was, but you're looking back and you're, you're sort of looking at Old Testament genealogies and you've got these little, these, little, uh, these little areas where you can say, ooh, I bet that might mean this. And you kind of go off into, uh, into these, these weird um, sort of metaphorical ideas or figurative, you take a figurative interpretation of a passage and, and you go off into, well, into left field, you go off into nowhere. And you just begin to speculate on all sorts of strange things associated with the Jewish Old Testament or the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible. This, of course, replaces God's word. God's revealed himself. He's given his word. And this has been replaced with human speculation. Speculation replaces revelation. That's what we see among these false teachers. Also, and this is very, very important, replacing God's work with human works. What's God's work? The greatest work of God is this, it is finished. When Christ hung on the cross, he declared that his work was accomplished. He hung on the cross, he paid the debt of sin, he bore the curse of the law. He took Adam's place and our place and he died as the second Adam for sinners. That is the work of God. And that's the only work of God that can stand at the heart of any true teaching. That work of God, so in that sense, every Christian church, every Christian pastor, every Christian who would speak or write or do anything must have a cross-centered theology, must have a cross-centered message. And here's important, this is important, a biblically understood and biblically presented cross-Christ-centered message. I came to you, Preach nothing other than Christ crucified. There you go. We're back to that again. These false teachers have replaced that with what? Verse 14 again. The commands of people. Probably dealing with defiling themselves if they eat certain foods or if they do certain activities. That's where they find their salvation. I want you to see this. This is the case with all false teaching. All false teaching looks away from what Jesus accomplished on the cross and the grace freely given through that and that alone always looks away from that to something else. It always replaces the free grace of God with human work, human effort, human performance, human achievement. That's always the essence of false teaching. It is always human works replacing divine work. And that is precisely what we have with these false teachers. And this turning away from the truth, this replacing of the divine with the human, this affront to the gospel of grace, this unbelief defiles and it corrupts the person. Why is that? That's what we find in the final verses. Why does it defile and corrupt the person? Because only Christ's blood applied by the spirit and received by faith removes sin and cleanses the most inner part of a person's life, the mind and the conscience. Only the blood of Christ given to us, the appropriated by us through faith, through the working of the Holy Spirit, only that can take away sin and can remove that, that guilty verdict that hangs over our heads, that verdict of guilty, condemned, that stands on everyone's conscience. Only, only Christ's blood through the Spirit by faith 
takes that away. And so anyone who replaces Christ's work with anything else has defilement from within. The deepest part of who they are is still in Adam and therefore defiled, therefore dark. And everything they touch is tainted with their inner defilement. Here's the irony. These guys are so conscientious, just like the Pharisees. The silliest bunch you'll ever read about in history. Most ironic bunch. These guys were so concerned about what you touch and don't touch. And where you go and where you don't go. And what you're around and what you're, I mean, they were so conscientious about everything all the time. And yet, everything they touched was defiled by their inner pollution. Jesus constantly spoke about this hypocrisy, this darkness. And that is the case with all people who reject the gospel of God's grace in Christ. False teachers and those who embrace their teaching are corrupt. And as Paul says at the end of this passage, unfit for any good work. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for the work of Christ, our Savior. God, we thank you that it doesn't depend on us and how well we're going to do this afternoon or tomorrow, next week. But maybe we'll get it together at some point, God. No, Christ had it together. God, may we know that. May we rejoice in that wonderful, glorious truth that Christ had it together every second of every day and he bore our sin on the tree. Remind us, God, of this as we read the Bible as we speak with friends, as we go to group, as we sit under sermons, as we listen to podcasts, as we do everything we do, remind us, God, constantly of your grace in Christ. May we not add to that with human works to save us. May we not replace that with foolish words of men and commands of men, but may we rest exclusively, Father, on this wonderful gospel. Father, protect us from false teachers. From within. May none of us fall into that, Lord, but we recognize that Satan is powerful. We recognize that he is crafty and that he is sowing, even as we speak, false teaching and division in ways we don't even know. It maybe won't manifest itself until years down the road. God, would you cut that off even now in the name of Jesus? Would you protect our church from the evil one? Would you protect uh, the churches that are represented? by family members of people here, other churches that, and and all churches, God, would you protect your church as we know you will. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Would that be said of this local church, God? Would we stay strong in the truth? Would we not turn away from the gospel of grace? Would we delight in it? Would we preach it to one another? Would that be our lifeblood, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So at this time, we'll have our communion. Just ask if you'll
If you're serving, you'll go ahead and come forward. This is also a time to, to give as the Lord leads you, to give cheerfully, not begrudgingly or because, man, I gotta give, uh, but because you, you want to give. And, and here's the, the giving is a response to the gospel. It's a, it's a gospel response. You respond to what you've been given in Christ by giving out of the overflow of your heart. Uh, and that's something we do at this point in our service. This is the time where we celebrate the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so as we talked about that at the end of the sermon, my prayer is that as we, as we come forward and as we file in line, please don't do this mindlessly. We all do it. We all just kind of get in line and we do it. We come back and we sing. Don't do this mindlessly today. Think about the finished work of Christ, which removes all of our sin and purifies our conscience.